Today's podcast is brought to you by Hemonk.org. Hemonk.org's easy-to-use platform updated by disease-specific specialists from across the country is your perfect pocket reference for all of your chemotherapy-related questions. Best part, it's free. Check out Hemonk.org today. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we round out our discussion on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, this time focusing on the second part of our relapse refractory uh, set of episodes. Yeah, excited to get into this one. We're going to go through a whole lot of details for this episode. Check out the show notes and we'll try to make this understandable. But it is an evolving landscape and there are so many new therapies out there. I'm excited that we're talking about some CNS stuff as well. Spoiler alert. But uh, that's something that always I always found confusing in training. So let's get into it. That sounds great. All right, let's roll that show. All right, guys. So welcome back to another episode. Dan, we're dying to know what are your thoughts? How does it feel to be a married man? Are you still riding that high from your wedding day? I'm most happy to have the various six-hour phone calls about cake design behind me. I'm very happy to hear that you enjoyed the cake. The cake tasting was one of my favorite parts of planning. The cake design was one of my least favorite parts of planning. But our baker was awesome, and she tolerated us very nicely. My wife commented at Dan's wedding that uh, she always hates wedding cakes. No offense to any of our friends. But... Dan's wedding cake was the best one she's ever had. And you're definitely the only person to ever have six-hour phone calls for a wedding cake, that's for sure. I was going to say, can I just add one more thing? Because this is another hashtag only Dan moment. Dan got married, went on a honeymoon, took an overnight red-eye flight, just be able to make a conference presentation later that week. So I was thinking that maybe he was going to defer, you know, any sort of honeymoon, but I learned, nope, nope, he was still going to do the honeymoon and he was still going to be there for that conference presentation. So kudos to you, my man. Yeah, shout out to Congress for keeping national parks open. That was a huge part of our honeymoon being success. But yeah, and you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that. I got three hours of sleep after I landed before the conference started, so we were in great shape. Well, thankfully, hopefully now you've gotten a few days of rest under your belt. So welcome back. It's good to see you again. Guys, so we have another episode here planned. You know, this is our, our last episode in our DLBCL series, which is hard to believe. It's been a fantastic series, in my opinion. And I think that's been the overall consensus from our listeners, from what we've gathered. So I'm excited to get into this one. And, you know, Vivek, why don't you just start us off with the case? So we have a 63-year-old male with history of advanced age DLBCL treated with RCHOP three years ago, who presented to the emergency department with visual disturbance and ataxia. A little bit of history, his initial staging PET-CT several years ago, he had adenopathy above and below the diaphragm, as well as extranodal disease with liver and kidney involvement. So remember that kidney involvement adds to that CNS IPI score. We talked about the Apple's mnemonic, but kidney involvement adds to that. It's a high-risk site. He had an excisional biopsy at the time. He didn't have high-grade B-cell lymphoma, so no rearrangement in MIC BCL2 or BCL6. But given that he had advanced stage disease, he was given RCHOP for six cycles, though now we all know that with the Polarix data, he would, have, he would get Pola RCHP in the current era of things. And he also got 
four doses of intrathecal methotrexate for CNS prophylaxis. He achieved a CR and was doing well until this presentation. When he presented, hematology was called, and we told him, hey, there's a concern for CNS relapse, and he underwent an LP and a brain MRI. The LP confirmed involvement of large cell lymphoma in the CSF, and the MRI showed diffuse leptomeningeal enhancement without parenchymal involvement of his large cell lymphoma. So really, it's just in the CSF with leptomeningeal enhancement. He had a staging PET-CT that was done, which showed multiple intensely avid pelvic lymph nodes, as well as intensely avid inter- and intramuscular lesions within the proximal to mid-thigh. So now we've got this patient with relapsed systemic DLBCL and also secondary CNS involvement with just leptomeningeal spread based on the MRI findings. So before we get into more details on his treatment plan, how should we generally think about the treatment algorithm for relapse disease? So like we talked about in prior episodes, we have to think about fitness assessment at this point. You have to ask yourself if the patient is fit for high-dose chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell rescue or fit for CAR-T therapy if they're sort of a borderline transplant candidate. Referral to a transplant or a CAR-T center is, is very important to help make that assessment as well. But let's assume that this patient is indeed fit for an intensive therapy. Then we have to think about another thing. Did this relapse occur early? Did it happen within 12 months? Or did it happen after 12 months? Remember that disease that's refractory after six cycles of chemotherapy or relapses within 12 months is the highest risk. And with those patients, we these days, we send them to CAR-T. This patient had a relapse beyond 12 months. So in the current era in 2023, we should think about a response-adapted approach, starting with a platinum-based salvage chemotherapy, followed by either high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell rescue, or proceed with CAR-T therapy if they do not achieve sort of a great response, if they don't seem to have chemosensitive disease, in other words. It's important to keep in mind that we wouldn't start with CAR-T like we would in primary refractory or relapse within the 12-month range because patients with these later relapses weren't included in those pivotal phase 3 trials for CAR-T. The last thing that's important to know, if the patient is refractory to platinum-based salvage chemotherapy, then we're considering them sort of equivalent to relapse refractory. So they have the same poor prognosis as those patients that we considered higher risk earlier, those that were refractory to initial chemotherapy or relapse within 12 months. And that's based on the SCHOLAR-1 analysis that we'd previously discussed. These patients that seem to be refractory to the platinum salvage therapy should proceed to definitive CAR-T therapy at that point. For less fit patients, we'll discuss a little bit. If our patient hadn't been fit for intensive therapy, there are some other options. We'll, we'll discuss that a little bit further down in the episode a little bit later on. That makes a lot of sense, Dan, and, and thanks for that refresher. And for the purpose of discussion, let's assume that our patient had a good performance status. One thing listeners... Remember, Dan did mention several times about this idea of platinum-based salvage regimens. We talked about this in one of our prior episodes, so be sure to check that out for a conversation. We'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. But remember that our standard platinum salvage treatment options are either R-ICE or RICE or R-GDP. So Vivek, what would be your approach in this particular patient, again, assuming he had a good performance status? Yeah, I think this patient brings up a very interesting aspect in lymphoma, and that's the treatment of CNS disease. And I really want to talk about that right now before we get into the management of this patient. When we think about systemic relapse of your large cell lymphoma, we need to think about something like RICE, R-ICE, or R-GDP, something like that. 
But this guy also has CNS involvement. And before we get into the treatment of his specific case with just leptomeningeal disease, we need to understand which drugs target the CNS for lymphoma. So first, let's talk about traditional chemotherapy agents. These are the things that we usually employ for those who have a mass in the brain, so parenchymal brain involvement of their lymphoma. That's when we think about using these chemotherapy agents. They cross the blood-brain barrier and they get good parenchymal control. And we know this based on data from primary CNS lymphoma patients. The drugs to know are high-dose methotrexate. And this is given as an inpatient because the patients need bicarb infusions, leucovorin, all of those things, monitor methotrexate levels as they clear them. IV high-dose cytarabine, IV thiotepa, which is something that you'll heal very frequently when it comes to CNS disease for lymphomas, and rituximab. So it's not great, but there is some efficacy actually for rituximab penetrating into the CNS, which is kind of interesting. And these agents, so methotrexate, cytarabine, thiotepa, and rituximab, are part of a regimen called Matrix, which is really a standard of care for primary CNS lymphoma. We're not going to really get into any of this in this episode. That'll be for an episode later on. But it's important to know those are the agents that get good parenchymal control. And the one to always remember is IV high-dose methotrexate. So when we talk about leptomeningeal involvement, that's when we think about intrathecal agents. And the reason why we're thinking about intrathecal chemotherapy is we can spare the systemic side effects and toxicity of those other IV chemotherapies that I just mentioned. And those include intrathecal methotrexate, which we often use for CNS prophylaxis, intrathecal cytarabine, or something called triple therapy, which is literally intrathecal methotrexate plus cytarabine, plus hydrocortisone, so a steroid. And that just is helping us prevent some side effects of those other two therapies, preventing arachnoiditis and severe nausea, things like that. And again, we'll have a separate episode discussing the CNS lymphoma, but the bottom line is this. If you have systemic relapse and CNS relapse, you need to do a couple of things. One, give a platinum-based salvage like rice. And the second thing you need to do is ask yourself, if I have parenchymal involvement, give IV high-dose methotrexate-type regimen, whether that's in addition to things like cytarabine, thiotepa, that just depends on the situation, it depends on the patient. But don't harp on those details, just know you need to use some sort of IV high-dose methotrexate. There's some data saying that you should alternate potentially between matrix and rice chemotherapy for some of these patients if they have parenchymal CNS involvement and systemic CNS involvement. We'll link the trial for that in our show notes, but don't worry about that too much. So just remember high-dose methotrexate if you have parenchymal involvement. If you have leptomeningeal relapse, you think about that triple therapy, which is intrathecal methotrexate, cytarabine, hydrocortisone. What you do this is twice weekly until the CSF is cleared for a minimum of four doses, and then weekly times four, followed by monthly times four. And because these patients are going to either typically transplant or CAR-T, we're usually thinking about, you know, they're not going to get all of these doses in. And you might be asking, well, what's the data behind that? And the answer is there really is no data. It's all extrapolated from B-cell ALL. So nobody really knows the right answer here. Just know that if you have leptomeningeal involvement, no parenchymal brain mass, do intrathecal triple therapy twice weekly until cleared the CSF, and then weekly times four, and then monthly thereafter. So... Let's say our patient got a couple of cycles, two cycles of rice uh, with that IT triple therapy, like you mentioned, initially twice weekly. When we're checking his CSF, by the third dose of triple therapy, his CSF cleared. So we weren't able to detect uh, lymphoma cells on that CSF after the third dose. 
So he proceeded to weekly therapy after his fourth dose. And at this point, he's completed eight doses of IT triple therapy with clearance of any of the CNS symptoms he was having. After two cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy, we get PET-CT and demonstrate a complete response, CR, on that PET-CT. So what do we do next? How do we proceed from here? This is where the idea of the response adaptive approach comes into play, whether we're going to go to high-dose chemotherapy followed by auto versus going to CAR-T. And so when we think about these patients, we really don't know what the correct answer is here because those phase three trials that got to the approval for CAR-T were in primary refractory or early, early relapse patients. We've tested CAR-T in the setting and know it works, but we don't know if it's better than autotransplant and it is more expensive than autotransplant. So that's where the tricky part of this comes in. So in general, if a patient achieves a CR, it's a category one recommendation. And many people would say proceed to autologous stem cell transplant basically high-dose chemotherapy by step, followed by stem cell rescue. You might ask yourself, well, will CAR-T work if you can't see any disease left over? You know, would CAR-T even have the efficacy? We have some retrospective data. The largest analysis only included about 33 patients, which we'll link to our show notes. It was promising, though, saying that CAR-T still does have efficacy in the patient population that had a complete response to platinum salvage. So some people would say, hey, just go along with CAR-T, and there's no right answer here. Most people would say, oh, you have chemosensitive disease, go ahead and finish up with high-dose chemotherapy followed by stem cell rescue and keep the CAR-T in your back pocket. If a patient achieves a partial response, so they don't have a complete response, but a partial response, then we could think that part of their disease is likely chemorefractory. And in most cases, you'd want to send that patient to CAR-T. You wouldn't want to say, hey, let's just do more chemotherapy and autologous stem cell rescue, though technically you could do that. We prefer CAR-T in that setting. And if they had stable disease or worse, they definitely need to proceed to CAR-T. There's no question about it. And just remember that all three CAR-T products are approved in the setting, AxiCell, TisaCell, and LysaCell. And we'll include data behind all of this stuff in our show notes. But the big thing to know, AxiCell has the pros of it. It has the best phase three evidence for an overall survival benefit, albeit in that primary refractory or early relapse patient. The cons are more toxicity. TisaCell has good activity less toxicity and might might be preferred maybe for an older patient or if you're trying to do outpatient CAR-T, that, that seems like a good, reasonable option. And then Lysacel has phase three evidence for it, but no overall survival benefit yet. And again, less toxicity than AxiCell. It's really choose your own adventure. The one thing to know is that Tisacel and Lysacel have less CRS and ICAN, so you might want to think about that in an older patient with relapse disease. That's a really great point. And I think that highlights why knowing some of these side effect profiles is so important. Because again, if you have a whole bunch of options, they all sound similar on paper, but certainly there is a logic to why, you know, people pick what they pick. So, you know, just to continue this conversation, then let's say the patient got CR, thankfully, after getting his platinum salvage. And in this case, we proceeded with that stem cell collection. And there's plans for high dose chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell rescue. So I think we previously mentioned that beam conditioning regimen. What are your thoughts? Is that what we would reach for in this setting? So remember, uh, just to recap, beam, that regimen is a combination of BCNU, etoposide, cytarabine, and melphalan. But in this case, because our patient had uh, some CNS involvement with his lymphoma, we would actually want to make sure they incorporate thiotipa 
as a part of his conditioning regimen instead of that standard beam conditioning regimen that we would use otherwise. Like we talked about before, that thiotipa gets really nice parenchymal penetration. And so it's just an important component of therapy for folks with CNS involvement. In order to do that, we, in this case, ended up giving the patient BCNU and thiotipa as his conditioning high-dose chemotherapy prior to the autologous stem cell rescue. Fortunately, we were able to achieve a CR, and he remains there for two years at least, because that's that's as long as we followed him for so far. <laughs> you know, if this patient had had refractory disease after salvage and was awaiting CAR-T approval, so he ended up getting BCNU and thiotipa as his high-dose chemotherapy conditioning, uh, followed by autologous stem cell rescue, and remains in a CR now two years after all this. So a good outcome for him. That's awesome to hear. And, you know, Let's just say hypothetically this patient after getting platinum-based salvage was still had evidence of refractory disease and now we're awaiting CAR-T, right? So this is the other possibility after we give them salvage. And listeners, we talked about this previously, so this is just a reminder of, you know, sort of how we can approach that particular patient. So again, this time they they got their salvage, they had still had refractory disease, so now we're awaiting CAR-T approval. And we know that this doesn't happen overnight, right? We talked about some of those long wait periods. Listeners, this is where we have to take a little bit of an approach where we individualize our approach to the patient based on how they're doing. So our options are either we observe them while we wait for them to get their CAR-T if they're stable, or if the, all of that disease is maybe clustered in a small area and is amenable to radiation, that's also one option. And then the other option that we had previously discussed is the use of POLA-R. And we'll get to POLA-R with the use of things like bendamustine in just a little bit. But remember, this is where we have to decide what we're going to do next with patients if they still have refractory disease. Do either of you have trouble remembering the nuances of all of these chemotherapy regimens? You know, Rona, I don't have that problem. And you know why? It's not because I know everything, but it's because of hamoc.org. And anytime I see a new patient that I'm about to start chemotherapy, I go to this website. It's free, easy to use, evidence-based. It's my go-to anytime I start my patients because it gives me the dosing schedule and all of the up-to-date information. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. I use it today in clinic, in fact. Not only do they break down the regimens by disease subtype, but they also provide links to those original articles that led to the approval of the therapies listed. Since these pages are updated constantly by disease-specific experts, you'll always be up to date on the latest regimens and dosing schedules. It's a great supplement to our fellow on-call website. Learn more about hemonc.org by visiting their website. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. Let's change the case, and let's say now we have a 76-year-old female with relapsed DLBCL three years after initial treatment with RCHOP times six cycles. And let's say, again, for the purpose of conversation, she's not a candidate for CAR-T or autologous transplant, given that she would be too high risk due to her unfortunately very poor performance status. So now, where do we go from here? I just want to start off very briefly by saying, what did we do historically and what's another option in this case? And and again, this is a different patient. Let's say she hasn't gotten platinum-based salvage and we don't want to give her something like RGDP or rice if we're not going to follow that up with an autologous transplant with stem cell rescue. Historically, our Gemox was a great option for these patients and still remains a good option today for many patients. 
And there were two phase two trials looking at relapsed or refractory DLBCL patients that really was asking the question of what activity does RGEMOX have? These were older trials. Not all the patients had seen rituximab in the first line setting. So hard to really take away the exact response rates out of this. But bottom line is this, RGEMOX is given every two weeks. These patients got four cycles with therapy, got a scan, and then proceeded with an additional four cycles. And what was found is that they had an overall response rate of around 60% and a CR rate of around 40%, with a median progression-free survival around 6 to 10-ish months. Again, don't worry about the exact numbers there. It's actually a very selected patient population, but it just it has activity. Not the best activity. Median PFS, we're still looking at like maybe six months or so. So- we can always think about our Gemox having some activity in these patients. Recently, it seems like I've seen a movement towards polituzumab with bendamustine and rituximab, like we had referenced a little bit earlier in some of these patients. And polituzumab adotin, remember, it's an antibody drug conjugate with a target of CD79B, universally expressed on B cells. And so it should have some good activity for, for this type of disease. What are your thoughts on, on using this regimen, this Pola R bendamustine. So I'm going to break down that phase one, two trial that led to the approval of this and going to try to do it extremely briefly, but really try to emphasize some important points that everyone should take away. So bottom line is this. This study included transplant ineligible patients with relapsed or refractory large cell lymphoma and excluded very high-risk patients. So no high-grade B-cell lymphoma, no follicular lymphoma that had transformed into a large cell lymphoma. And it was a weird trial. The phase two portion of this trial included a couple of parts. There was one part that randomized 80 patients to bendamustine rituximab versus polituzumab plus bendamustine and rituximab. And then there was something called an extension cohort where they said, oh, we have good activity when we randomize these two. Let's just give everybody else pola BR and see what happens. And they gave it to another 106 patients. And the way this was designed is patients got three cycles, then an interim scan, followed by another three cycles, and an end-of-treatment scan. So the response rates they're talking about is that end-of-treatment scan. And there's some really helpful conclusions from the study, but there are also some false conclusions that can be drawn from this analysis, which I think has been perpetuated when you hear about this study. So when you look at the study, there's a comment saying that Pola BR had an improved survival compared to BR. This isn't really the conclusion that we should draw from the study for a lot of different reasons. And I think first we need to start off with, well, we talked about Rgemox having activity. Where did this whole idea of bendamustine, which is an alkylating agent, plus rituximab come in? And there's a couple phase two studies that said, hey, this has a response rate, maybe 50-ish percent, a complete response rate that really varied. Some studies said it was about 15 to 20 percent. Another study said it was maybe 35 to 40 percent. So anywhere between 15 to 40 percent based on a couple of phase two trials that we'll link to our show notes. And the important thing here is when they were asking holotuzumab in addition to bendamustine rituximab versus bendamustine rituximab alone, this trial was powered for an improved CR rate by 25 percent assuming that the BR would get a 40% complete response rate, which I think is a little weird that they chose that to begin with. Regardless, that's what it was powered for, not survival. And the results did confirm the activity of POLA BR, but there are many limitations with the comparison of BR. So in the study, there was a CR rate of 40% in the POLA BR group, but only 17.5% in the bendamustine rituximab group. The overall response rate was only 22.5% in the bendamustine rituximab group, which again, I think is odd that Everyone who got a response had a CR. The same was true in Pola BR. 
everybody that had a response had a CR. There was like one partial response, which doesn't fit with any other lymphoma trial that has ever been published. So that seems a little bit fishy to begin with. And we really looked closely at the original publication prior to the extension cohort. Roughly 50% of patients in the bendamustine rituximab arm have missing data on their response. So we have no idea how they did. So we're getting a percentage with half the patients missing. So you can't really trust that percentage or that comparison at all. What you can say, though, is polituzumab, in addition to bendamustine rituximab, does have activity. And when you look at why we're 50% missing, there were 14 patients who never got imaging because the investigator just said, ah, I think they've progressed. I don't want to get imaging. And four patients who had imaging after three cycles, and the investigator said, oh, they have progressive disease. And when central assessment reviewed it, they actually didn't. So it seems a little bit odd. And when we think about this, it's something called informative censoring. And you definitely can't trust survival analysis in that case. So huge limitation in interpreting results. What we should know is polituzumab in addition to chemotherapy plus rituximab has activity. Overall response rate of maybe 40-ish percent. CR apparently has the same 40-ish percent response rate. I guess it's all or nothing with polo-BR according to this study. And the PFS of this regimen is around maybe 6 to 12-ish months. So an important regimen to know. The other big thing is it's significantly lymphodepleting. These patients required both PJP prophylaxis and HSV prophylaxis, which is why when we think about bridging chemotherapy, we omit the bendamustine when we're thinking about taking somebody to CAR-T. You don't need the bendamustine. You don't need to lymphodeplete them. You don't need to put them at risk for infection. We were looking at activity, and it seems like polituzumab probably on its own, has pretty good activity with rituximab. But again, we don't have really good comparative data here. So polituzumab plus bendamustine plus rituximab, I would say is an option, but I wouldn't say it's the greatest option in the world based on all of these limitations. And there's a lot of unanswered questions in this space right now. Listeners, everyone should get ready to hear more about breaking down trials in this way in our teaching critical appraisal series that's coming up soon. Keep your eyes out for that. But just remember that we do have POLA BR as an option in this setting with pretty good activity. And you need to remember that this is a very lymphodepleting therapy that requires both prophylaxis for both HSV and PJP. I think we've covered a lot of ground today. And maybe we ought to take a break here and, and continue our discussion next week. So everybody come back and we'll round out uh, we'll round out our relapse refractory. I think that sounds great. And listeners, again, this was a lot of information, very high yield information. Go back through, listen to it again, check out our show notes for the highlights and all the links to all the big trials, just so you can continue that conversation on your own. All right, guys. Well, then until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.